Miss the show, no worries, on point and on the podcast. The Canadian military dealing with more than just a crisis. It's in full-down meltdown as the top soldier put in place to replace former General Vance steps aside also now under investigation for sexual misconduct. Another woman's been killed in an instance of domestic violence. This is another crisis being overlooked because of COVID. And a report into long-term care reveals those in charge waited way too long to do anything despite many, many warnings. Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to you, that's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Listening. In the end, uh, we want to make sure if there's system-wide improvements necessary, what should they be? And that's why I'm always interested in uh, going to say what uh, what can we learn, how we can handle this, and how we keep moving and building for the future on these issues too, because some things we have done well, some things I think we could do better. That's always the case. Mm-hmm. His own testimony reveals the doctor that the Premier trusts the most did a whole lot more wrong and acted way too late. But today is one of those days that really, really leaves you shaking your head because it just kind of punctuates how consequential failed leadership can be and has been during the last year. And so the question then becomes, you know, why do we allow it to continue? And on Monday, Ontario's top doc, Dr. Williams, and I am not picking on Dr. Williams because I think he's probably a lovely, lovely guy, but he testified at the uh, Long-Term Care Commission. Now, this is a commission looking into, you know, if thousands of deaths could have been avoided. So today, they released this 230-page report. That was my that was my day, going through this 230-page report, while my son played the recorder, I might add which was special. Nonetheless, it is very long, but it's also very clear that early on, leadership and a quick response was completely missing in action, like it didn't even exist. And I am talking common sense decision-making that still to this day is missing in action. And so we learn from Dr. Williams' own testimony that it wasn't until late into the first wave, like almost into summer, when Williams... The guy who leads the premier's decision-making and the guy who Doug Ford says he trusts implicitly would even accept that there was asymptomatic spread of COVID. Well, how, how can that be a thing? How is it possible given China, Australia, Taiwan, Japan, Iceland, and Italy all warned the world there is asymptomatic spread? Hello, red flags waving. And we knew it was an issue with the school kids back in the spring. We knew it was a threat because the teachers' unions were screaming about it. It was a big reason schools were shut down. We also knew from 2003 and from all the reports and inquiries and commissions after SARS, remember all those things? That even if the science wasn't settled, the warning in those reports was to put in all measures possible in the event of a pandemic. And clearly no one of these experts, no one bothered to look at those reports, which are apparently still collecting dust somewhere on a shelf. Because by the time Williams and his team figured out this threat, there were hundreds of outbreaks at long-term care homes and hundreds of people were dying. 
And then when the experts did figure out asymptomatic spread was a threat, Williams and his team uh, allowed these healthcare workers just to keep moving home from home. You know, go to home home. Some of them, as Williams testified himself, had jobs at grocery stores. And back then, you might recall, the talking point then was that an iron ring's being put around, you know, to protect our most vulnerable. And yet, month after month, workers are still bouncing home to home. They are still today bouncing home to home. So Williams and his team now have known for months that spread is getting into homes because of community spread and, of course, a lack of rapid testing. And I don't know if he's confused because during his testimony, he kept saying spread wasn't happening home to home. It was coming in from the community. Now, look, I'm no rocket scientist. But if a personal care worker has a job in the community, goes home on transit in the community, maybe works at a grocery store, and then goes back into these homes, bouncing home to home, did they not think there was going to be community spread getting into these homes? I mean, what am I missing here? I don't think I'm missing anything. Because it's clear that these experts, you know, the people locking us down, shutting our schools, crushing businesses, I mean, they seem to have ignored and continue to ignore the very obvious warning signs that could have spared a lot of lives and I think spared a lot of the rest of us months of endless destructive lockdown measures. And Dr. Williams, he has the power. He had the power to stop people from working outside of health care to reduce risks. But in his testimony, he said, well, that would breach civil liberties. I mean, I read that and I almost spit my tea out. I was like, what? Since when did any of these people care about civil liberties because they have been breaching them for months and for much less threatening things? I mean, are we being punked? I mean, it's laughable to even hear that. And then, of course, the report goes on and on, exposing failure after failure, revealing, you know, we know that there are staffing shortages. There was a failure to move healthy patients out of COVID hot zones to hospitals. I mean, we might as well just sit there and let them rot. And they were using snail mail to send COVID tests back and forth for results. Here, I'm just going to put a stamp on this thing and send it. Oh, three days later, you get, I mean, really? No sense of urgency. Zero. So what I think this exposes is what we've known for decades. I don't think we needed a report to tell us what we, I think, have been blind to. And that is our archaic, bloated bureaucracy of a healthcare system. And it's many, many layers of experts held us back from rolling out quick actions needed in a crisis. And for me, anyway... It confirms that no one in charge was capable of thinking outside the box to react or act quickly. Nor did anyone heed the experience we had with SARS. And still one year in, nothing's changed, which is why we continue to see failure after failure with needless deaths and these destructive lockdowns that seem to be the only strategy. And I'm not picking on Dr. Williams. I know he works very hard, and I think he's probably a very nice guy. And he probably regrets not taking that early retirement. He's also not the only one who deserves scorn. There is so much to go around at every level of government, certainly at the federal level. But given the many mistakes made then, 
And given they continue now, I mean, it is really hard to have faith that he should be leading. And for me, it also highlights, you know, that Premier Ford can no longer hang off his every word to make decisions because at the end of the day, he is the elected leader. And a good leader has to think outside the box. They have to make decisions that balance both the health of the economy, the health of the public at large. But most of all, a leader has to admit when something's not working. They can't just remain loyal. They have to be able to take another direction if the direction they've tried several times isn't working. Stay with us here. Alex Pearson on point. You're listening to Global News Radio. Is he aware of any other misconduct allegations against any other command officer in the Canadian Armed Forces? That is a Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole in question period on the latest chapter in a story that Global News broke weeks ago and is now a full-blown political crisis. But it also signals Canada's military is also in crisis and lacking leadership. And that is because the uh, new news is that the new chief of staff, Admiral Art McDonald, who stepped in to take over for the former top soldier, General Jonathan Vance, just weeks ago, has now also voluntarily stepped aside after these allegations of sexual misconduct and other alleged behavior surfaced. And so that's now under investigation. But in his first official speech, he promised to stamp out sexual misconduct and racism in the Canadian forces. This is a similar promise that former General Jonathan Vance promised. And as Mercedes Stevenson has been reporting, now there are new, now two different investigations into sexual misconduct involving General Jonathan Vance. I want to bring in Colonel Michel Drapeau to this conversation. He is with Michel Drapeau Law Office, the first established private law firm to practice in military law. Good to have you, Colonel. Hey, thank you very much. So this is um, on a scale of severity. I mean, is it fair to call it a crisis at this point? Oh, it's it's more than a crisis. It's, it's an explosion uh, when it comes to the sense of confidence and credibility, respect, and and reliance upon the the high command and uh, and the organization they lead. No, no, it's a crisis of leadership that uh, I've never seen the, the the like of it, and I've been associated one way she performed with the military since 1959. Never seen anything close to it. And this is in no way to disparage the men and women who do serve this country, who I who I think a great deal of and, and who serve with a lot of honor. But there have been problems, certainly in management positions. And Minister of Defense Harjit Sajjan, he says he won't discuss the details. And he was grilled by parliamentarians last week on why he did not remove General Vance when he was first told about these, you know, um, sexual misconduct allegations back in 2018. And he said he put it up the chain of command, but nothing has been done about it, and Mr. General Vance stayed in charge. And so there's something missing here. A, there's no transparency, but he was left in charge. Well, there is there's more than that. I think if I were to put my finger on, on it, it would be as follow. Parliament has basically delegated all of its power to the Defense Department. Anytime there is a crisis, 
department turns to national defense and basically says, you fix it. This is why we have a minister of national defense who won't tell us, in fact, what has been done, if anything has been done, concerning the investigation of the allegation made against uh, General Vance. Uh, he mm. wouldn't tell us also about the allegations made only last night against his successor and uh, and what type of process he goes by. L- let me let me open by saying, suggesting, for instance, that as soon as the allegations were made against the former governor general, immediately yeah. the central agency, the Privy Council Office, took charge as it should because you're dealing with a, a governing council appointment as the CDS, and they yeah. immediately hire a civilian firm independent from the governor general to investigate and to report to them and the rest we all know about. In D&D, they're asking the D&D police and internal police to conduct their own investigation. Uh, what what uh, Admiral um, McDonald potentially is... Uh, is 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 uh, is 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 being asked to respond to our allegation of misconduct. Misconduct are not a criminal nature uh, issue. We don't need to have a criminal police to investigate it, in which will take months and ends if we were to work through the criminal law process. I mean, before it goes to court, it could take all that while. We're kept in the dark. I mean. The, the minister had a choice. He could have used Section 45 of the National Defense Act and create a board of inquiry, which he could, or better yet, Parliament should have a, a process mm-hmm. whereby anytime something serious occurred in national defense, it would do like it does in any other department. It would mm-hmm. have its own means to investigate. One of the ways to do this, which has been tried successfully, in Australia, New Zealand, and Germany, and and Holland, and many of the northern country, is the creation of an inspector general. Inspector general reports to parliament. He has the rank, the authority, the power to investigate and to report. And that's and that's and he reports to parliament. Hence, he reports to us uh, through the media, and we know what was happening. This is not the case where. Uh, Parliament, as it done, and government delegates all of its authority. It's almost as if it's a state within a state. When a complaint mm-hmm. is made against somebody senior, whether it's the purchase and the procurement of, of vessels or whatever it is, the Deschamps report is a good case in point in 2016. We left it to D&D to investigate itself and to fix it. And they're at the center of it. They're the reason why we're the mess we are in now. We should have used a, met- a methodology such as an inspector general outside to mm-hmm. be able to report. I mean, don't ask D&D to tell you how good of a job they do because you know what the result's going to be. So we're in the worst position now that we were before Madame Deschamps did a report. When I testified with her before the Senate Committee on National Defense this week, Madame Deschamps said her report in 2016 was based on data that she accumulated in 2014. So that's seven years ago. And she deplored the lack of progress. Disappointed, surprised, how little progress has been made in D&D. Of course, because she made a report and the, the very people she was critical of we're responsible now to fix it. They didn't know how to fix it in the first place, and they said not did not fix it cor- correctly, despite the passage of seven years. Right. And so you have to wonder, how on earth were these not flagged? I mean, this is a failure of vetting. I mean, uh, General Vance was appointed by the Harper government back in 2015. The allegations were rooming, you know, going around the rumor bill back in 2012. But the Trudeau government put in this uh, new person. Both of them were brought in to clean up things like sexual misconduct. How could this not 
have been caught by basic vetting. Well, exactly. I, uh, short answer is I don't know, which brings me to another point. Canada must be the only country where Parliament, civil society, has no say in the selection of critical command appointments. Those are the individual, the chief of the army, the chief of the air force, the chief of the navy, and the chief of the defense staff. They will lead our youth, our sons and daughters, niece and, and nephew, in mm-hmm. war. Uh, if war came and it will be abroad, they, we will entrust into their hands the, the safety and the direction and the leadership of our sons and daughters. I think Parliament and civil society should have a say in, in who is at the very least get to find out who will be leading them. We don't. In the United States, before any anybody can be appointed as a general and, and selected for a high command, uh, the Congress gets involved and they review most often they will rubber stamp, but often again, and it happened again recently, that they say, just hold on. We're not happy with that. We don't want this to happen. At the very least, the senior military know that in civil society, there is oversight, there is review, and civil society expect its military leader not only to know the law of war and tactics, but to know about professionalism and social yeah. and uh, political and economics and so on and so forth. That's what we expect of people in which we're going to be entrusting what we hold the dearest in our life, that is, the life and safety of our sons and daughters. Yeah, and and, and look, transparency leads to trust. Um, without it, it, it crumbles apart. Um, so no one in charge, including those who are accused, are going to speak out. No one in the Trudeau government is going to speak out. But we do know that alleged victims are coming forward. Certainly one spoke with Mercedes Stevenson already, and we know that there are many, many more contacting her. You know, only the, the uh, Madame Deschamps in her original report says, the majority of complainants, the majority of victims do not report the crimes for two reasons. Mm. Because they don't trust the chain of command or the military mm-hmm. police. And, and second, they fear that if they were to do so, reprisal would be taken against them. Because yeah. at the moment, the only place they could go to is the center that was established inside D&D under the deputy minister. It's not independent. It's not external. And most of them would rather suffer in silence the indignity that they were left with as opposed to coming forward because they don't trust the system. And that's why we need uh, an office that is outside. I'm recommending an inspector general uh, to receive those, to send a signal that they can they can come to this office and, and they can trust, in fact, that their complaint will be received, they will be listened to, it will be investigated, and action will be taken. Yes, it'll be a question of who knew what when, and we will, in fact, find out in time, but... Uh... We will, of course, get the answers. Colonel, I want to thank you very much for your insight and your time on this. You're most welcome. Thank you. Bye-bye now. That is uh, Colonel Michel Drapeau joining us, and uh, he would know. He's got decades of experience. Bottom line, uh, they should get on their knees right now and beg Vice Admiral Mark Norman to to take charge, because had they put him in charge, I'll make a bet that we would not be talking about this today. Stay with us on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. I want to talk about another story, another headline uh, revealing another woman is dead, killed, allegedly at the hands of her partner. And this latest one happening Wednesday night in a Richmond Hill home where we're told children were said to be inside. And she becomes just the latest headline because the COVID pandemic, um, certainly over the last year, has led to a huge spike of not just domestic abuse, but femicide. And it's largely going unnoticed and certainly underreported. You know, and it's happening because 
women are getting locked into homes with their partner and they have no way to escape. And for a woman trying to escape abuse, that is when they're in the gravest danger. And I was looking into some of the stats trying to figure out where the numbers are on this. And according to Canada's Assaulted Women's Helpline for Calls uh, for Domestic Abuse, it skyrocketed in the second lockdown from tw- uh, to 20,300 calls between September 1st and December 31st compared to 12,300 calls in the same period back in 2020. So lockdowns do have costs, and in this case, it is to women's safety and lives. Nika McGregor is co-founder and executive director of Women's Center for Social Justice. She joins us now. Good to have you, Nika. Thanks so much for having me on. This is one of those issues that on any normal news cycle, if there were no pandemic, it would get front page news. And these cases are happening at such an alarming rate, but they are not getting attention. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I'd actually like to suggest that even pre the pandemic, um, the murders of women doesn't get the attention in the media that it, it actually deserves unless there's a, this sort of multiple um, femicide uh, component to it. So there are multiple people who've been murdered, such as the incident that happened in uh, Nova Scotia. But you're right, since COVID, uh, these horrific acts have taken a back seat and they are blimps. They'll, they'll, they'll be top of the cycle for, for the minute. And then something else about COVID comes, there's a new vaccine, and mm. the, the woman gets you know, uh, sidelined. And the tragedy, the impact, the loss to her family, her friends, her children becomes you know, just another quick blimp in, in the news cycle. So you're right, COVID has taken over everybody's life. And, and I understand it, but these are real tragedies. These are real lives, real women who have been, um, you know, taken, taken from. Mm. Yeah, and it affects, of course, the children left behind. And often a woman can't leave because they have to think about the children. And it's not always easy to flee to a shelter when you've got kids. You've got to somehow get them out. It's a very difficult thing to do and is most uh, dangerous, uh, you know, what they say when they, they try to escape. What are some of the things that you have been hearing, um, you know, as to why women can't get out of these situations? Is it a lack of shelter space? Is it a lack of uh, police response? Why are they not able to get out? It's a really, that's a great question. And it's a very complex uh, set of reasons. So if you take the, the issue around shelters, for example, not many women don't go to shelters because they're, mm-hmm. they're a stigma. There, there's a stigma yeah. attached to, to that. And so finding safe, affordable housing is a huge priority where women can you know, with with the little finances that they that they have available, they can go to to support themselves and their children. So there are some systemic pieces around safe, affordable housing. You, you mentioned the, the issue of police. A lot of women don't report. A lot of women don't go to the police. And and even without the, if if you look at the the population of individuals who will most likely not go to the police, you look at black women, you look at Mm -hmm. indigenous women who, because of the systemic racism that's endemic in a lot of the police force, women don't feel safe going to them for protection. So they suffer in silence. And when you think about how 
again, broadly, society looks at this issue of, of femicide, um, intimate partner violence, domestic violence, whatever you want to call it. There's still the stigma, right? There's still a shame and a blaming, and a, a, the responsibility is somehow still put on the woman, right? Why, why, why did you not leave? Why are you still staying? Yeah. As if, as if leaving is going to be the solution. But as you said, we know that that point of separation is one of the most dangerous times for, for women. One of the high risk times where women are actually. Um, murdered. They're actually killed by a current or former partner. And one of the more frustrating um, you know, aspects of this particular kind of crime is that there's always so many red flags and uh, there's so much warning beforehand that you say, well, why didn't we act sooner um, to prevent it? And yet it, it just continues the cycle. Yeah, well, and, and again, this is one of the things that we talk about how when a woman is murdered, when a woman is killed by a partner, you will get neighbors neighbors coming out to say, you know, he was such a nice guy. We didn't know. We, didn't, we never knew that this was, was happening. But if you really dig deep, which is part of the work that we do, I, I'm a member of the Domestic Violence Death Review Committee. Part of the work we do on that Domestic Violence Death Review Committee is really try to get behind the, 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 the lives of these individuals, the lives of the perpetrator and the lives of, of the women. And when you dig, when you scratch the surface a little bit, you'll find that people... Somebody knew, somebody along the line, somebody had an idea that this was happening. Now, the extent of the happening varies, right? There are some, for some instances, there, there isn't um, any physical violence, there hasn't been sexual violence, but there's been some coercive control. There's been mm-hmm. intimidation, there's been verbal abuse, there's been, you know, isolation. And when you look at that sort of pattern, you can see you can actually predict, and, and Alex, it's it's interesting because when when the news hit about this particular femicide, I can guarantee you that if you asked anybody that works in the gender-based violence sector, if you asked anybody, they would have told you just by the headlines that I bet you, yep, she was killed by a, a, a partner, a, an ex-husband, or a, because all the signs were there, all the signs mm-hmm. were there. And the only way really to honor these women is to have an honest conversation uh, about it. What isn't being discussed and what does the conversation need to turn to? Well, I think what's not being discussed, well, first of all, where it's not being discussed is it's not being talked about in school. I think it needs to start from when, you know, children are young to start talking about what healthy relationships look like and what unhealthy relationships don't look, um, look like. I think mm. the the other part is again the, the the idea of women being held responsible for the violence that's committed against them, and trying to shift that narrative, right, to move away from the shaming and the blaming, and actually look at ways to hold perpetrators accountable. I personally, I can say this on national radio, I don't believe in the criminal legal system. I don't believe that it's a site that actually provides justice. Or, or healing or accountability, because we've oh, seen... Oh, you don't have to convince me on that. I, I, I have known that for a while, but, you know. Well, um, yeah. part, so part of what we've been doing is trying to figure out alternative models of justice, right? Different ways to bring about accountability and actually transform behavior. And so one of the things that we've been advocating for is this whole transformative accountability and justice model, 
that actually wraps aggressors, the perpetrators, with support, right? If you can figure out a way to get to these men and help them understand, help them unlearn these really violent patriarchal uh, perceptions that they have, that's the way you can actually start interrupting the violence. Because looking And how would you away, do that? Well, we have... Because oftentimes, and I'm not making a blanket statement here, but there, there's an ego involved. Sometimes there are anger issues involved. I mean, there are a whole bunch of variables. But how would that, how would that look and how would that work? Yeah, it takes time. It, really, it takes time and it takes investment because it took time to create these ideas in, in, in men, right? They, they've been raised in this culture. So it takes time to undo and unlearn this. So number one, it, it requires investment. It requires a government to actively invest in programs that will support um, men. We have right now the pa- Partner Assault Response Program, PAR programs. It's only 12 weeks. And I, I, I don't know how anybody can be um, reconditioned into thinking differently in 12 weeks when they've spent a lifetime believing that they, they're entitled to their partner's attention. So number one, it requires dedicated funding. Secondly, it requires time, right? And it requires, I, I, I'm, I'm saying this, it requires patience, but it requires wrapping these men with the types of support that they need in order for them to start understanding Because anything else, you're just going to put a a Band-Aid on uh, a cancer. And it doesn't keep women safe. It does not keep women safe. Yeah, and I I would suspect that conversation also should be starting younger when boys are growing up. And and if they are being abused, addressing that so that it doesn't, um, you know, recycle throughout their life and get carried out. Well, it's a a conversation we're not going to stop tonight. Uh, It's a conversation that is much longer than I can afford in this segment. So we will continue talking about it. NECA, I appreciate your time. You're very welcome. And I just want to very quickly, Alex, there's a, the, the federal government has started consultations on the National Action Plan to end gender-based violence. And so we're inviting the community to get involved and have your say. Have your say mm-hmm. in what type of society we need. So thank Absolutely. you so much for having me on. We will have you again. That is Neka McGregor, and she is with the Women's Center for Social Justice. And I know, because I get the the emails, violence does go the other way. Women are also guilty of these kinds of things, but by far, and the data provides it, it is women at the hands of a man who end up paying the ultimate price. It's just, you can't even compare it. So, Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio. The uh, Long-Term Care Commission is a big story today, and they're looking into if thousands of deaths could have been avoided. And I don't even think, do we really need a report to know that answer? I mean, of course. But some pretty revealing testimony from Ontario's top doc, Dr. Williams, reveals that, you know, even though warnings of asymptomatic spread had been made by several countries weeks and weeks in advance, he didn't buy into it until, of course, hundreds of outbreaks were raging and hundreds were dead. And even then, and now, we've allowed PSWs, personal safety workers, to bounce from home to home and haven't removed the threat. And that was just one of the findings. Let's bring in Laura Tamblin, Watts, CEO of CanAge. I'd like your thoughts, Laura. What was the most kind of shocking revelation that you heard from Dr. Williams? Well, there were a number of them. It's almost hard to choose. You know, Dr. Williams 
said out loud that he hadn't bought into the idea of asymptomatic spread until late in the summer. And that's Mm. very hard to understand because certainly we were talking about it in medical journals in March and the World Mm. Health Organization came out on June the 9th and confirmed that there were cases of asymptomatic spread. So I'm not sure what was the part for him that wasn't resonant. The other piece. Well, certainly because, very- well, certainly because I'll remind you, I mean, schools were shutting down because there was concern of that raised by the teachers union. So, I mean, I don't know, like, how he didn't know that. And if you look at how other provinces were behaving as well, this is certainly quite contrary, for instance, to how British Columbia started acting. I guess that leads to the second piece of revelation, which is around, you know, the lack of concern he had for staff going between homes. And he even doubled down on it at one point and said that there wasn't evidence that staff were spreading between homes, but that they were, you know, perhaps getting it from the community. And then we mm-hmm. we heard the commission say, but isn't that fundamentally the biggest concern, is that it was coming in to the long-term care homes from the outside? And there was really no good answer that was provided to that as well. I guess the I found that puzzling too, say, though, because... Because, you know, and I want to bounce off your points, because he, he acknowledged that you have these personal safety workers working at grocery stores, that is in the community, and he doesn't recognize that they're going there into the community and bringing it into the homes. Like, I, that didn't square for me. It didn't square for me either. And there was some, the tone, I think, was also somewhat concerning. It seemed dismissive in places, talking about, you know, staff working in pizza parlors and not paying attention. And for somebody who's the top doctor in charge of COVID response in Ontario, that seemed a peculiar thing to focus on when really what we're talking about right now are almost 3,500 deaths of seniors. And and it, there seemed to be this sense of shifting the blame to mm-hmm. low-income workers who are really just trying to make ends meet. Yeah. And the other concern, you know, when there are many, uh, is that a lot of the measures that are such a threat to the most vulnerable, who apparently we had an iron ring put around, are still in place. So we still have personal safety workers bouncing from home to home to home. And when we're looking at what other jurisdictions, again, like British Columbia did, we closed those doors almost immediately. You know, Bonnie Henry shut down that transference of staff amongst home in the middle of March. And we've seen good evidence to say that not shutting that down or taking into account even basic masking until Mm. well into April was the cause of the majority of symptomatic spread, which led to death in long-term care. Yeah, and I would hazard to guess or say that had we not gotten as many people in long-term care vaccinated as we have now, um, you know, we would be looking at just probably more deaths, um, given that we really haven't changed any, you know, we haven't put that iron ring in. We haven't, and we haven't really taken steps to increase staffing either. Mm-hmm. Again, looking at how our jurisdiction in Ontario is doing compared to some other jurisdictions. You know, we've talked a lot about staffing, and then there's been, you know, the odd comment about it. But we saw in the testimony that Dr. Williams kept kind of throwing his hands up and saying, oh, well, we didn't have staff. 
And that seems like an unacceptable answer for somebody who had control of ensuring that staff was safer and that we could take initiatives to increase staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and he can't be blamed for, for decades of problems in long-term care, but certainly when you're in a pandemic, you have to act. And, and I think what is very clear now is this bloated bureaucracy, very outdated healthcare system. Um, you know, no one in charge had the fortitude to think outside the box and say, look, we don't have time to be mailing test results back and forth. We have to think outside the box and move quickly. And it's, I don't know if it's that no one thought outside the box or that the system is so bureaucratic that it just stops anyone from reacting in an emergency. Layering onto those concerns, which I think are both really valid, is this consistent lack of prioritization of seniors. And that was a choice that the commission got into a little bit as well. But what was this obsession with trying to save acute care when all of the evidence from other countries, and indeed the West Coast where it began, was that unless we took basic preventative measures in place, we were going to have what exactly happened, a senicide in long-term care. It was predictable. We could see it coming. And yet, Mm -hmm. consistently, he didn't take the steps necessary to protect seniors. Well, we were warned about it. There were books written about it and documents put forward by inquiries and commissions out of SARS that, you know, when you're in a pandemic, no matter what you're being told, put everything, uh, put everything in. It's a pandemic. You just throw everything that you can. None of that was acted upon. And so my concern again is, you know, the, the premier states every day, I take my, my, my advice from the top doc. That is Dr. Williams. And I, I think that Dr. Williams is probably working very hard. I think he means well. But there's a failure in leadership on this. And when there's a failure of leadership, people stop buying in, stop trusting the system, and uh, nothing good comes of it. And I think building on that, as we're seeing the rollout in Ontario, we are hearing reports of warehouses and shipments of vaccines that have not gotten through distribution. And those, you know, those concerns are real, that Ontario has had a real failure in distributing the vaccines first to long-term care and now to community-based seniors. So we're looking at what Dr. Williams is talking about historically, and we're looking at what's happening in real time, and I don't see much difference. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but I don't think anything should shock anybody because, uh, you know, it kind of seems very predictable to me. It's just no one really acted and, and the talking points don't don't actually match uh, what we're being told about protection for our most vulnerable. Laura, we will talk again and uh, because this story has not yet been told. Thank you. Appreciate your time. That is Laura Tamlin Watts, CEO of CanAge. So that uh, just a little bit of what we have learned today and we'll continue learning more. Stay with us here, Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio. You, of course, can join us Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on Point. This is Global News Radio.